Broadcasting from the commodity capital of the world, Zurich, Switzerland, this is Insider's Guide to Energy. This edition to Insider's Guide to Energy is brought to you by Fidectus. Go to www.fidectus.com for more information. Insider's Guide to Energy. I'm your host, Chris Sass, and with me as usual is Johan Oberg. Johan, how's it going this week? Uh, doing good, Chris. Doing good. Uh, it's been a, another great week uh, from an energy point of view. Obviously, we have a situation around the world which has some effects as well, but uh, set that aside for the next 45 minutes at least and talk about uh, something more interesting. Well, I, I was amused this morning uh, so as you may know, I come from the D.C. area. I used to live in the Chesapeake Bay. And one of the news articles that caught my attention this morning, not necessarily energy related, but it had to do with a ship running aground in the Chesapeake Bay from the same company that blocked the canal not so long ago. So it was kind of interesting, you know, you know, seeing seeing the evergreen ship run aground in the Chesapeake Bay. I, I thought that was kind of amusing. So it was a little lightened up my day. So apparently they're, they're still running ships aground. But this one's not blocking navigation and, and less impact in global supply chain. So. <laughs> uh, well, we don't need anything more now uh, in terms of that one. I think we had uh, enough of, of challenges around. Yeah, we did. T- today I'm talking to us from London. Um, I'm, I'm over here, another commodity hub. I know I usually am in Zurich for, for the podcast. I'm over here working with customers over here. Uh, you said it was a good week in energy. What did you mean? No, but I, I think in, in general, we, we, we've seen a lot of, of uh, I think, initiatives in terms of the green initiatives. And I think... We, we will always come back to the situation that, that is emerging in, in the Ukraine and, and and also the legislation and all the, the political decisions, potentially even forcing uh, this renewable investments and, and kind of the, the, the geopolitical part of, of being more energy independent. So I think that's kind of an interesting part of following, maybe accelerating now uh, due to unfortunate circumstances. But uh, for, from, from a sustainability point of view, I, I think it's really, really interesting to see what is happening, and, and, and I'm really encouraged to hear more about this today as well. Yeah, I, I'm interested in today's program. I, I, I just finished reading this book on energy, and it talked about some projections that some analysts had done, and they'd include hydro in there. And in, in the projections, the, the author questioned some of the projections because you basically had to replace all the turbines and in, in, in all the, the hydro plants in order to get the kind of capacity you're thinking of. But what I believe is I think hydro is certainly a part of the solution. Living in Switzerland, um, I, I see hydro all the time. It's it's a major part of, of the country we live in. Um, but I'm looking forward to hearing from our guest point of view, you know, where this plays in the sustainable solution and how this helps and, and what more could be done to leverage it. Because I grew up as a product of the 80s. And, you know, when, when I was growing up, hydro was considered bad, right? It killed fish. It was, you know, I, I remember my uh, you know, science professors telling me that, you know, you didn't want to build these big dam projects and things. Now I live in a country where it's, it's just hydro all over the place and it seems to be sustainably doing okay in Switzerland. So it's, 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 it's a, be interesting to hear where it is in 2022 going forward. No, I agree. And I, I think obviously working for, for a company that is a hydro company uh, by default, you know, my, my company and the company that I've been working for now, we've been doing this for 100 years. So I think it's really, really interesting also to get the view of, of an outsider <laughs> from the company to, to learn a little bit more about it. Uh, I think that's uh, quite interesting, but also fascinating to hear about the the investment, where are they coming from? Who's investing and where is hydro for everyone? You know, this is what I understand very geographically as well in terms of what you can and what you cannot do. So uh, I think we have a lot to explore and unpack uh, in the next Let's dive minutes. in. Let's, uh, let's, let's bring it. Alex Campbell onto the show. Alex, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Well, once again, I have the advantage over our audiences. I know who you are and what you do, but maybe you, in your own words, could introduce yourself to the audience of who you are professionally and give a little background on yourself. 
Sure, delighted to. So my name's Alex Campbell. I'm the Head of Research and Policy at the International Hydropower Association. So that's an uh, association, as the name suggests, for the, for the hydropower se sector. We like to think of ourselves as the voice of sustainable hydropower. We've got just over 100 members active in well over 120 countries. So really trying to promote the, the role of hydropower in the energy systems of the 21st century, which, well, of course, is increasingly changing. And we will see that shift from the, the baseload provision of hydropower for the, you know, as it's done for the last 100 years into something which in many markets will be much more a supportive role, helping to integrate those other variable renewables. I came to the IHA in August 2020, so not quite two years. And uh, but previous to that, I'd been in a, a number of government posts in in the UK government. So I helped to run the contracts for different auctions, which are, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, the auctions for renewable capacity in the UK. So I I led on the the policy framework for that. Uh, Previous to that, I did international nuclear policy, worked on decisions like the Hinkley Point C decision, spoke with Russian counterparts, Chinese counterparts in, on various international nuclear matters. Before that, smart meters. Uh, so again, you know, a, a, a different angle in the, the decarbonization story, if, if you like. And uh, previous to my energy experience, I had about 10 years in regulation, mainly in the tech sector, but also a little bit of, of media thrown in there as well. But yeah, just over 10 years ago, climate change, obviously increasingly important. And it just struck me as a, an area I wanted to move into and, and, and work in. So uh, fast forward, and now now I'm uh, helping to promote the case for sustainable hydropower. And you've, you've already touched on some of the, the challenges, but also the opportunities that we think the sector will have. So it, it sounds like you've been in a number of different elements of the energy business. H how do they impact and how do they prepare you to be in the hydro industry and in sustainable hydro? Yeah, so I I must admit when I when I started at, at Hydropower, I thought, well, I've I've done three years working in nuclear. These you know uh, these guys can't teach me anything about the difficulties of trying to bring NGOs and stakeholders on on board on on the journey. But I actually found there's there are some similarities, but some real differences. I mean, as as I'm sure you guys know, nuclear power just arouses some really you know hot hot uh, topics and opinions you know some people are just pathologically opposed to them but the the story with hydropower is a bit more nuanced you touched earlier on on the impacts on fish and and certainly in the past there's been some some bad projects we 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 all know that but over the decades over a long period of time working with stakeholders we've developed these sustainability tools now reflected in the hydropower sustainability standard to really make sure that projects are are delivered with uh, best practice in mind but nonetheless, you know, there's there's no getting around the fact that if you're you're building infrastructure, any type of infrastructure, it has impacts on the natural world. And what I what I found was, you know, you you whichever technology you're looking at, whether it's onshore wind, you have opponents; whether it's nuclear power, you have opponents. And when I say opponents, I don't mean irrational, crazy people. I mean rational, sensible, logical, intelligent, well-meaning people who, who look at something and say, oh, you know, we understand about climate change. We understand about the need to electrify, you know, low-income parts of the world, but could you just not do it with this technology here? And I think, you know, what I've learned from my experience is it's, it's trying to get those conversations going and trying to explain that the big picture, the, the massive global challenge that we know we all face, not just on climate change, but as, as the news currently shows, energy security as well. Which is quite interesting, of course, as, as a big picture and, and, and coming in with, with your background to support this, um, you know, I think, I think it's really, really interesting. But at the end of the day, I think it's also, if we look at the organization you represent and the objective of, of your 100-something members, what, what would you say is, is kind of the core objective? Uh, promoting and, 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 and kind of educating is one thing, but is that really kind of the core objective of the organization? Or what would you say is your, uh, your main objective uh, as part of an organization supporting these 100-something members? So I think it's to shift shift the dial, shift the needle, if you like, on getting sustainable hydropower built. We know that if you look at the IEA or the IRENA projections, we know there needs to be a huge increase in the amount of low carbon electricity generation. 
Now, for hydropower, that's not as significant as it is for for you know wind and solar, where you're talking about a ten or twenty fold increase. But that nonetheless, those organisations still say to have a, a fighting chance of hitting net zero, we probably need to double the thirteen hundred mm. gigawatts or so of hydropower that we got today by twenty fifty. So for for me and for us, it's about trying to push those policy frameworks, get them into place, so that they we can actually then develop that hydropower, make sure that governments are supporting it, make sure that the, the markets are in place to to support the services that hydropower provides and, and so on. But is that then, uh, we'll probably touch on this later on as well in terms of the investment parts, but is that, uh, out of curiosity, is that also then based versus what? Is that versus fossil fuel or is that the investments for hydro as a supplement or a complement to, to wind and solar or is it actually taking re- literally investments from other re- renewable energy sources as, as solar and, and, and adding them to to uh, hydro? Or h- how does that work? So, I, I mean, when, when, when you look at the projections, when you look at the numbers, it's clear we need to massively dial back, most obviously on coal, but also on gas. So it, to the extent that there is money, uh, spare money going around, you know, it could come from there. But that, that needs to be invested across the piece in flexible, low-carbon electricity grids. Hydropower is just one component there. So I wouldn't see it as taking it from any other form of low carbon electricity or indeed flexibility. To the extent it's taking money from anywhere, then it then it should be naturally from the, the fossil fuels. But you know, you, you guys know this. There needs to be a huge increase in all forms of low carbon electricity. We can't hang around. We need to really put the foot on the pedal and we need to do that for obviously solar and wind, but also hydropower, also for flexible spark grids. You know biofuels where they can be done sustainably and of course you know nuclear power still needs to to increase if we if we're really to get to net zero so i I guess you're talking about the the increase and and that leads a little bit to the technology right so and i think on the pre-call we 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 covered this um high level is you know is there enough um locations and is there enough capacity to to really get the hydropower where it needs to be or is the technology advanced that you can do more with the existing dams and infrastructure in place um give us an idea of where where we're at in the life cycle of uh, hydro yeah so uh, the simple answer is all of the above but the uh, the, the, <laughs> the longer longer winded answer is let, let's take these ex- existing fleets so it, it is getting old i think around half of the 1300 gigawatts out there today about 600 gigawatts is 30 years or more old um if you go down to 40 years you're looking at about a third 400 gigawatts so there is an aging fleet but that does present an opportunity for modernization for refurbishment and typically you know without even major equipment upgrades you can eke out an extra five to ten percent um, generation just from doing a decent modernization program. Obviously, with a major refurb, you, you could potentially get more. So there's there's potential with the existing fleet to upgrade it. And that's more relevant for Europe, for North America. But also, you know, we're doing a big project at the moment with the African Development Bank. There's there's old infrastructure in Africa that can do with, with modernization. So it's it's not unique to the developed world by any means. But in terms of the potential for, for new generation and uh, greenfield uh, sites, there is more than enough. When when you look at the kind of peer-reviewed scientific literature, it suggests that to take the most extreme case, perhaps only 10% of the African potential has been touched. In places like Asia, it's, you know, 50%, similarly with um, South America, question marks over North America, you know, how much how much is realistically available. But when you factor in, you know, large amounts of untapped potential in, in Canada, then theoretically, at least it's there. Obviously, Europe is particularly well developed, but nonetheless, there is still greenfield potential in in Norway, in Turkey, if you include Turkey and Europe. So there there is there is definitely that that potential there. And that's before we even think about things like um off-river pump storage hydropower. And I, I don't know how much your listeners know about pump storage hydropower, but it's uh, a quite clever way of storing energy. Um, you have two reservoirs, and when electricity is cheap, you pump water up the hill, and when it's expensive, you let it back out again. It's a great way of, of integrating wind and solar, for example, and, and storing energy. And it's by far and away the, the, the most dominant form of grid scale storage at, at the moment ac- across the world so when you when you look at 
those types of solutions, the potential is absolutely vast because you don't need a running river to develop them. Um, obviously, then there are costs involved and, and so on. But um, as I say, the potential is absolutely vast. All right. So, so what I just heard you say is the fleet is aging. You can get another 5% or 10% out of perhaps what's already infrastructure in place by modernizing it, I think is what I heard you say. Mm-hmm. Um, I also heard you go on to say that, let's say, certain regions, there's still plenty of untapped um, resource that's ideal for this. And then you, you, you kind of closed with the, the, the grid storage, which has been around for a long time, that concept of, of using grid storage. So so why is there an association um, encouraging hydro? So if, it, it, if it's the panacea that you just described, why isn't it everywhere? Great question. Yeah, and that's that's my that's that's my day job really, trying to unpick that. One, I also I forgot to talk about unpowered uh, water infrastructure. Maybe we can come back to that afterwards. Yeah, please. So, so uh, I mean, we look at it. The electricity systems across the world, in particular in liberalised markets, have have been changing over the decades. It used to be those vertically integrated utilities who could see the value of an asset like hydropower across across all their operations. They could see the um, things like the inertia that might be provided, black start capability, all, all those those types of um, sophisticated uh, grid services, as well as the, the, the pure energy. As, as markets have liberalized and, you know, each of the providers of those has been separated out it's it's become harder to make the business case because of the way the markets are set up and in in the case of pump storage hydropower it's it's been a particular problem in that when they were originally built you know the, i guess the peak time was maybe the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s you had nuclear plant running all through the night because it was wasn't efficient to turn it off so you could it was quite straightforward arbitrage question you know you knew electricity was going to be cheap at night and you knew it was going to be expensive during the day and to a lesser extent you had that with coal as well it was more efficient just to keep keep the coal systems running through the night so there was a nice natural fit even you know even if it wasn't a vertically integrated utility there was kind of a quite obvious business case with Increasing penetration of of wind in particular. I mean, solar is obviously much more predictable than than wind. But with wind, when as we know, we can get weeks and weeks of, of strong winds, and then you can have weeks and weeks with very you know low wind. And just predicting and forecasting those markets becomes much more challenging. And if you're an investor going to, or sorry, if you're a developer going to an investor saying, well, you know, we, there's definitely a need here. You know, we, we've, we've done the maths, but, you know, it's quite hard to predict exactly when when you're going to get your return. I can understand from the investor's perspective that, well, I can I can go and get a contract for difference for, for wind turbines. You know, the government of that country is going to guarantee me a, a price for 15 years. You, you can't do that. So for us, it's about trying to find mechanisms which aren't a subsidy per se, aren't money, you know, transfer from, from governments or or taxpayers, but are more about just trying to ensure long-term revenue visibility and certainty with, you know, with risks being apportioned appropriately, you know, the construction risk should sit with the the developers and, and so on. But we're just we're just seeing that it's it's not really caught up the 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 kind of need for those flexible provision low carbon forms of electricity just just hasn't caught up yet so if we look at if i just touch back on this in terms of the investments and you you mentioned the unpredictability on wind versus maybe a little bit more stable uh, in terms of of hydro but isn't it also a capex or a larger investment for a longer period of time which makes it a little bit more uncertain in terms of hydro versus wind or am i no, no. I, I, I think it's that's that's a really fair point when you you compare um, hydro. Now, of course, the 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 kind of the amount of construction you need to do before you can start generating with hydropower is is necessarily a higher proportion of the the ultimate capex, I, I guess, than it would be with wind. It's probably closer to to nuclear in that respect. So you you could get a turbine running, but you still you know before you put all the turbines in. But you still need to build if you're doing reservoir storage at the dam. You know you need to put all those civil works in place. With I mean, obviously with solar, it's a lot more straightforward. And even with wind, you can in theory get get some of your turbines up and start getting that that return on investment sooner. So it's it's definitely a a feature of hydropower that you know the 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 point at which you can start getting your return is going to be necessarily later on in the project. And that you know. 
can understand that from an investor's perspective that that can be troubling which is which is why if we want those flexible sources of low carbon generation on, on grids in the future governments and policymakers need to think about these and, and, and think about well how do we how do we make that work so that we're not caught out in 10 15 years time relying either on on gas uh, blackouts which would obviously be a, a, a total disaster or or just betting the house on some really expensive as yet un, undeveloped um, long, long duration you know low, low carbon but long duration form of energy storage so when when you look at that the investors if we, if, if we continue on that track if we look then on is there a difference between would you say between the investors then on you know renewable is the the, the, the new kind of thing right we, we see a lot of money moving into renewables we've had a number of investors on the show we have a lot of innovators on the show with 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 quite quite a lot of money to do this but would you say that there's a difference then in terms of who invests in what kind of uh, technology so so when when we look at wind this might be a short term or shorter term in terms of uh, return on the investments on the energy generator where maybe hydro then is more of an infrastructure uh, investment for for a period of long time would you say there's a difference in terms of who actually puts up the money and in investing in this or is it's it's hard to say so because because we look across the piece globally and we're not just looking at private sector investment we're also looking at um some of the multilateral financial institutions like the world bank like the like the regional infrastructure banks and they obviously have a role to play especially in in developing countries but in respect of private sector investment uh, I would say, sorry, it's not a very helpful answer, but similar but different. You know, there are <laughs> there are some some players who are active in in both um, uh, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, for example. You 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 might see them them playing in 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 both areas. There will be some who you know those investors who want that that quicker return. You know, might be more prepared to go into solar and wind. We we are obviously keen to encourage the pension funds and and the so on to to treat um hydropower as as a you know an investable asset or, or class alongside other forms of safe in inverted commas uh, um infrastructure investment and there are you know when we think about things like sustainability that's obviously a, a increasing concern for many investors now especially institutional investors and so you have things like the climate bonds initiative who have criteria for for green bonds in in um, hydropower so to provide that kind of reassurance that the you know they're not going to be caught out if they put their money in something with a with a load of stakeholder blowback and of course negative real world consequences so has the market changed so you, know, you talked about kind of the history of where where dams and projects were built. In my memory, I kind of have, you, you talked about some of these kind of global funding organizations. And you know, to me, it was always kind of, you know, a political tool where you could go into a third world country, you build a big dam project, it was feel good. It, it kind of helped sway to, to a political will. Has that kind of changed in today's hydro world? Or is it still, is it still something that we're, it's being used to extend your political reach right because that, that's the way i look at the old projects you know a big dam project seemed to me is, is kind of more about politics than the, than the actual project is the way it looked at least from the cheap seats so yeah i'm so i'm absolutely sure some of them are being characterized in that way and there might well be an element of of truth to that i wouldn't say that's unique to hydropower obviously large infrastructure anywhere can be a, a vanity project for for um uh, politicians that's that's certainly not unique to hydropower i think you know there is more from our discussions with the likes of you know the the african development bank to to name one or, or world bank and, and and so on you know there is there is much more of a focus now on that real world benefit understanding the impacts understanding where hydropower fits into the both the electricity ecosystem if i can use that phrase but also it's it's wider um social benefits and understanding the impacts but also the water service benefits so um you know flood control you know drought resilience climate change uh, re resilience and ad adaptation services and so on so i think it's probably not unique to to hydropower i suspect there's been an evolution around the the thinking about large-scale infrastructure especially in in developing countries um across the piece as i say not not unique to hydropower but you know is 
worth worth adding and um, i'm sure many of your conversations uh, note this as well the place which is building the most at the moment is no great surprise china you know china is absolutely the world leader in hydropower at the moment and when we look at the the numbers that as i said before irena and iea are, are forecasting needs to happen to to help get to net zero if we took china out of the picture a a not particularly great picture would look really really quite grim it would be you know outside of china it's it, it's not been developed anywhere near the pace it needs to be and um, there are a number of reasons for that and I, I i touched on some of those earlier so you also mentioned in your intro that hydro should be considered not so much for base load but also for kind of grid scale storage so so what kind of changes um would be supporting that what what's driving that change and why should that be considered differently so yeah i mean just just to be clear on that it's it can obviously be baseload and there there are many countries around the world you know costa rica's the you know the paraguay or so on where norway you know where, where hydropower plays that that really important role but as we see wind and solar plummeting in price which is fantastic news for the for the climate we all know, or well, those of us who who spent a little bit of time thinking about electricity and energy, that you need to have, you know, both backup, but also integration services, and there's a whole host of really technical stuff that happens that we we don't see, which is really difficult to explain to policymakers who are you know thinking about a million and one different things. And so for for us, getting getting those market arrangements right so that they reward the flexibility and, and you know put the proper value on that kind of flexibility is, is really essential and that that's where you know when i when we talk about things like storage un- understanding you know what what's what's in it for the for the operator there are they are they being paid just to release as much electricity so generate as much electricity as as they can or actually are we thinking about some sort of capacity type market market type arrangement or even a more sophisticated one where you're where you're literally paying them not to generate because you know that that resource is, is available when you have the wind drought when it's particularly you know gloomy and overcast it's it's you know these are these are difficult difficult things as i say to get get into energy ministers heads you know some of them are very good at it others as i say understandably they're they're complicated subjects and you're you're asking them to in effect um you know pay pay people for what seems like nothing in, in some cases but it's incredibly important when you do need it is the message being well received? It's so uh, it, it's complicated. It's uh, the solution is complicated, no matter what what form of energy we're talking about. I find, um, but so you, I think you said you came from a regulatory background as well, and in, in some of your history. So how is it being received? So we've seen some progress. For example, in the the UK, put out a call for evidence last year on long duration energy storage. I think they had recognised that there there is a there's a gap here that. You know the the UK government does. I say that because I used to work there. Do, does fantastic modelling um, on on the energy system of the future, and clearly they'd identified. You know that there are going to be be these gaps, and so they've really started to sit down and think about it. Put out some some proposals for possible mechanisms, uh, somewhat akin to the cap and floor arrangement that's in place for for interconnectors um, between. Uh, Britain and and continental Europe, for for example, but in other places, you know, you 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 get the sense that people are only now beginning to understand the the urgent need to decarbonize, you know, to get coal off the system, you know. So they then they're seeing the price of wind and solar, and yet, you know, you're you're trying to say to them, and by the way, in ten years time, twenty years time, you're going to have this problem as well. I understand that's that's not going to be their their priority, and we we keep banging the drum um one of our board members malcolm turnbull who's the the former prime minister of australia he talks about the crisis within the crisis you know because he saw this when he was prime minister of australia you know the the risk of blackouts and so heavily promoted the the snowy mountain hydro snowy mountain 2 um pump storage hydro uh, facility whilst he was in office because he recognized it and, and and could see it and you know i think the the worry is i guess that policymakers will make this tomorrow's problem um, and then as we all know suddenly tomorrow's problem becomes today's problem and, and everybody's scrambling around desperately trying to find a solution 
So, so I get the long-term nature. Now, I, I can't help thinking, once again, this goes back to that whole thinking about dams and things and being American, thinking about watching videos of the Hoover Dam being built. And I grew up uh, about a mile from the Niagara power plant. So very familiar with hydro my, my whole existence. Um, what comes to mind is the amount of concrete involved in these. So you're talking about carbon change and things like that. So do modern dams use less concrete? Because I think concrete has a very high carbon output when you use carbon. So how does that offset? You, know, you build a big dam project today, you may be creating green energy, but you're also creating carbon, are you not? Yeah, absolutely. So again, any any infrastructure has embedded carbon in it. Hydropower is quite unusual in that the 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 kind of biggest concern with hydropower, in particular with hydropower that uses reservoirs, is when when you flood an area, you um, cause the organic material that was previously not not underwater to to die um, and break down and release um, climate gases, so methane and, and carbon dioxide. And the the kind of bigger concern, rather than the embedded the concrete that's embedded in in the walls, is is actually the emissions from from that um is it anaerobic i think it's anaerobic breakdown don't don't quote me on that though and we and others have have looked into that and there's been a, a lot of studies our, our friends at unesco fund a program at the university of quebec in, in montreal um the unf triple c has has looked at the embedded emissions across different technologies and i'll get to the point hydropower is is actually very favorable at a median point compared to other technologies. So the, the numbers are around, I think it's 12 grams per kilowatt hour for for nuclear. Wind is, is in about the same place. These, these are over a life cycle, so over the lifespan of technologies. Hydropower is a bit higher, around the mid-20s. Solar is about 40, for example. And then, you know, gas is, what, 300 plus, something like that, coal, 800, 800 plus. So... Yes, there is there is absolutely emissions in, embedded in the concrete. Like I say, it's actually probably more important to think about the reservoirs. But on a median basis, over the whole lifespan of of the infrastructure, it's actually pretty low and and well within the the limits that we we need to uh, put in place to to hit net zero. How does that come with them? Um... With, with investors, if we connect uh, the investors back then to to the sustainability value, because I think sustainability is driving the investments for many many of, of the new investors around this, or even the old ones. And if I if I just take an analogy, uh, quite a few years ago, I I bought a diesel car. Uh, it was actually uh, subsidized due to the fact that it was an environmentally friendly car. And, and obviously, some new research came out, and it's not so uh, sustainable uh, at the end of the day. This is a car that, okay, big investment for me quite a few years ago. But if I am an institutional investor, we're talking millions and millions for the next 30 years, and suddenly something changed, and, and uh, new research comes out and says that Hydra is not specifically uh sustainable then how how do you how do you work with the investors around uh, around this because what what kind of interesting here is is that it is a long-term commitment or investment that kind of shifts a little bit of, of the momentum around it absolutely and there's there's a number of ways to reassure investors in in that regard so I think I mentioned earlier, we've got the, for example, the Climate Bonds Initiative, and they have criteria for, you know, for, for green bonds, as it were, and they, they reference tools that can be used with hydropower. And that, for example, I think there's a 50 gram limit for, for projects here, if for the, you know, for a project to be sustainable in, in that respect, in terms of emissions, the EU taxonomy has similar sorts of limits. And, and we've got the um, hydropower sustainability standard, which isn't actually the IHA standard. It's it's an independent council, which IHA works closely with, of course, but as do NGOs, as does the World Bank and so on, to really set a, using a, you know, a suite of tools that have been developed over many years, some really cutting edge in, in the world of sustainability um, criteria for assessment. So, an investor can can come in and if, if they want to, can re request an assessment using those tools or, or ultimately against the standard. And so reassure themselves that they're not going to get 
bitten here that, that this is now a, a widely recognized mechanism for demonstrating compliance with those really important ESG aspects that, of course, many people are concerned about. Uh, so I, I get Johan's question. I guess I, I'm still kind of thinking that the way you describe this is hydropower is just part of a solution that's an ecosystem. You talked about the grid and other green energy is part of this, right? So you're, are you part of your day job? helping create the rest of the infrastructure to support because, you know, just having power, you know, power generated somewhere and going into a poor grid design or something like that's probably not all that helpful. You talked about the, um, the legislation or perhaps some of the um, regulation to go along with it so that you have a favorable market condition to support this. So what, what's the kind of the whole ecosystem you're working with, I guess, is my question. So, so I get, you get the dams and you, you, you've got the studies, you talk about some of these different agencies, you talk about the funding, you got the investment angle that Johan's going down. Oh, and, and I think you talked about regulation. What's the whole picture look like? Maybe you could call it that for us. Yes. I mean, g- grid connections and interconnectivity is obviously critically important. It's important for hydropower. It's important for, for all the technologies. And we do where we can work with some of those um, organizations which are trying to promote green grids, as it were, around the world to make sure that there is clever planning, uh, you know, at that kind of big scale infrastructure level to, to work out, well, where should we put the grid reinforcement in place? And, you know, we, we would turn around and say, uh, for example, in, in some some regimes, the, the grid operator isn't allowed to operate generating equipment, which means they can't get pump storage hydropower in place, even if that's actually the most cost effective way of them managing their grids because of its ability to, you know, quickly react to to supply and demand. We also think about clever uses of of existing infrastructure and floating solar PV hybrids with hydropower are one really interesting example of that, where you can uh, maximize the use of a reservoir, especially important in countries with high population densities. And, you know, Southeast Asia, we're, we're, we're seeing this increasingly with obviously great solar radiance as well. But taking advantage of the grid connection that the hydropower facility already has to a lower the cost of the the floating solar facility but also reduce some of the wear and tear on the the hydropower equipment so that kind of clever use of different types of equipment together which sometimes requires the breaking down of barriers because you might have a a legacy state-owned you know regime in, in Laos operating the the hydropower facility who just thinks, why, why do I want to get involved with with solar? And we've seen some really interesting cases where developers have come in, where you know international aid, aid agencies have come in and, and talked them through and shown how it's a, a in that classic phrase a win win for everybody to 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 do ex- exactly that. We're also thinking, you know, it's not always you know there are, there are some fantastic hydropower resources which are a long way from grid connections, and there's something like um, hydrogen comes in. Uh, you know, we, we see in some more remote parts of the world, hydropower used for, say, aluminium smelting, which isn't necessarily connected to the grid, but it's, um, you know, it, it's kind of that self-contained lower cost model. And you, you might see in the future hydrogen being produced um, with hydropower in remote areas because it's cheaper to ship the gas or, or ammonia even than it is to, to ship electricity. And, and hydropower's got actually quite a long history with with making hydrogen it was i think back in the 1920s there were facilities in norway for example mainly for use then in in fertilizers and they kind of wound down through the 20th century but it it clearly the the potential is there if we look at hydrogen uh maybe just quickly on it where where do you see the uh, i like the way you you explained this on on the localized part but where do you see other kind of short-term um applications for, for for then the green hydrogen so I, I i mean hydrogen is is fascinating it's it's been seen as that great green hope and you know when when you look at it certainly from a technological perspective that that seems to be the case and there's some really interesting discussions going on you know in countries like britain at the moment about how do you decarbonize domestic heating because that you know at the moment you've got do you go down the gas gas route there's existing infrastructure in place in britain pipelines and so on that would need to be modified and and boilers again which would need to be modified 
would you go for pure electrification and and then put heat pumps in place and so on but those require much more significant investments in, in insulation and you know much more significant changes to people's houses and if there's anything about the the battle against climate change it's that making people change behavior is is a lot harder than just putting you know some wind turbines up off offshore even that creates some some opposition but you know completely restructuring people's houses is is difficult so i i mean i i i really want to see green hydrogen succeed or low carbon hydrogen there might be a role for for blue or pink hydrogen as, as well <laughs> but let's you know we, we we do need to see hydrogen being rolled out I think first and foremost, um, and I'm sure you guys will have an opinion on this as well, it will go to those hard to abate sectors. So high temperature heat, long distance vehicles, um, they may be into that lower grade heat, depending on, on the costs, like I say, um, with, with things like domestic heating. But it could, of course, ultimately be used for, for generating electricity. And that's, you know, that will be a challenge for the hydropower sector. You know, I've, I've talked a lot about the important role of of hydropower in, in providing that that backup and that resilience you could do that with hydrogen i think that's got to be the last use of hydrogen surely we want to use hydrogen for air travel if it's feasible for you know the high temperature heat that i, that I talked about beforehand um but they you know they certainly could be a role for, for hydropower it's it's got that um in the right place the high capacity factors to justify keeping the electrolyzers on all the time um as I say, you you could you know have a really nice arrangement with with you know the localized users very close to the to the manufacture of, of the hydrogen. But it, this is playing out, and I'm I'm, I'm sure you guys, as I say, have, have lots of thoughts on that. It's 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 going to play out in a really interesting way over the next five ten years. I'm sure. No, for sure, and I think we've had a few people on the show, and I think it's also always fascinating because I think the the interaction also between other industries. If we talk talk about transport, for example, I think for the first time energy industry is kind of in the back seat of actually making that technology shift it's actually going to come from someone else and the energy needs to adapt to it but but i i'm always curious to hear a little bit about the hydrogen but i'm going to drop it now because i think we're also running a little bit <laughs> on on topics uh so maybe move back a little bit to, to hydrogen to, to hydrogen or to hydro to hydro sorry you're right We've all done that. <laughs> i was like oh okay <laughs> we can go wherever so I guess with hydrogen, right, it's, it's it's a density question, right? You talked about aviation or maybe long-haul trucking or some other things like that. And how does um, the storage and, and the, the, the use of water to, you know, for pump storage and things like that, is it, how does it compete, compete? I mean, it's probably, it's very dense, I would imagine, for energy. Absolutely. So water is, is dense and you can even use higher density liquids to drive turbines as, as well. Um, and I know there are some interesting companies and, and technologies at play there. I guess the the kind of the argument versus, or not the argument, but the, the kind of discussion with, with hydrogen is you can use hydrogen for so many things in so many different ways. And I'm sure you know, once once the mechanisms are right, it will start being produced at scale. And I think for the hydropower sector, you know, we'll we'll keep using water to generate electricity. We're not not going to use it directly to power aircraft, of course. That would be a, a, a fantastic thing. Although I think hydrogen, to be fair, is quite some way from doing that uh, just just yet as well. But it's it's yeah, it's a more focused role for for hydropower than hydrogen. You know that that will go across the piece and and revolutionise the whole energy sector. I think. So where does um, hydropower work well, and where does it not work well? Like where where would you recommend it, and where would you not? Like so, what are the pros and cons for hydro? So places I wouldn't recommend it, probably not in the desert, you know, for, for obvious reasons. Uh, you know, it, it all depends what, what you're looking for and what types of impacts you're concerned about and what the rest of your energy mix is. But, you know, in simple engineering terms, you're, you're looking for height and mass of water. You know, the, the higher the, the head, so the dif- distance between the top and, the, and where, the, where the water's coming out and drying driving the turbine the the better that's why we have lots of hydropower facilities up in mountains um it's it's you know incredibly energy efficient and and powerful there and obviously if you've got big rivers that's that's beneficial as well i think the interesting places to you know to to start thinking about where it where it work well in the future in terms of 
greenfield sites are well i don't know if, i don't actually know if they count as greenfield sites so unpowered water infrastructure there's according to icol the international commission on large dams there's something like 50,000 large dams around the world less than 20% of those fewer than 20% are hydropower facilities there's a huge amount of infrastructure out there that's that's already if you like there's a sunk environmental cost it's it, it's caused the the ne negative impact already why don't we try and utilize some of that infrastructure i know that's something that the ngos even some of our you know most most critical friends are keen on because they they see that as being a a benefit and obviously places like europe are, are absolutely full of um obstacles in in natural waterways but even you know across africa across asia there are still thousands and thousands of these um obstacles i say that that makes it sound negative they're there for irrigation purposes there for navigation for you know um, flood control drought control and, and these sorts of things and they won't all be right for for utilizing with hydropower but some of them will be and it's it's a tremendous potential there but it's the it's the usual kind of public policy barriers and issues that are stopping them being developed you know who owns it? Who's got responsibility for that infrastructure? Do they have anything to do with the people who are responsible for energy? Are they different again from the people responsible for water? Do those departments speak to each other? Are some of them privatized? You know, all these sorts of things which make a simple or relatively simple engineering challenge really, really difficult are, you know, at, at play when we think about issues like that. So I think uh, as, a, as a kind of follow up, we, we discussed a lot about the, the politics around it. We talked about the financial uh, around this, and obviously, I think we all agree on this one that that the hydro is something that will be a fundamental part in this energy transition. Uh, you also mentioned a little bit about the growth in terms of China being leading the way, which in many ways, uh, not just for, for hydro, but specifically, uh, we went through a little bit on on kind of pump run of river and, and kind of storage uh, in terms of this one, but kind of just little bit of a for for our listeners and and, and including myself do you, do you see anything specific some new technology something specific that you think this will actually have an impact or is it more improving the processes that we have and and expanding regionally or, or number wise on what we have so just i mean if we just i won't bore you with too many statistics but we we talked earlier we need maybe 1300 gigawatts by by 2050 alongside a load of other technologies we've we've assessed the pipeline and there's about 500 550 gigawatts in there at the moment and less than fewer than 200 gigawatts of that is actually under construction you know there there is a huge gap between what we think is needed and what is actually being built so that's that's kind of a slightly alarming thing for for me and and the sector because it's it's not just important for hydropower it you know that's that's a huge amount of low carbon electricity generation if it doesn't happen are we going to really be able to to build other technologies at that kind of huge scale that's needed so for me it's about you know working with the the partners who perhaps are concerned about the the impacts of hydropower and just trying to get everybody to to look at that big picture you know if we have 20 times as much solar and 10 times as much wind there are going to be electricity cables across the globe you know it's going to be absolutely smothered for for understandable and good reasons we need to you know keep looking at this as, as a holistic problem or you know look at it holistically to, to try and get get to an accommodation which means that people accept development even in, though it's not ideal to to push back against climate change uh, yeah i don't know if that's quite answered your question but i thought you know it's just important to have that reality check on on where we are with with the numbers so i, I think we've gone pretty much all over the place in this conversation so I, I what i'm i'm hearing is that there's a gap in the projects that exist in in the need there you know you want to ask some funding questions of who's funding these and you know are there concerns with some of the modeling and the long-term nature the kind of the nature of the beast and it sounded like you know, you have to work with different um, governments and also global organizations to kind of help make these things come to fruition. Um, so are you bullish about us being successful? I mean, you obviously changed roles. You, you, you've, you've dedicated yourself to working in uh, this energy sector. Um, what's, your, 
what's your uh, crystal ball telling you about the future? How, how are we going to do on this? What, what's the reality check? So I'm I'm a natural optimist. I, I really am, but it's it's borderline on on this. I think we really need to see governments focusing on long term system wide planning and understanding what what's coming down, un, understanding the gap they're going to have coming down the track. And then hydropower will have a role. I'm I'm sure of that. It won't it won't be the answer to everything, of course, but it will it will have a role. If they don't do that. Then, then the, you know, it's uh, then I am worried both for the sector, but also more, more generally, again, you know, about tackling climate change because I think it will be next to impossible to get to net zero unless you have really sophisticated forms of long duration energy storage. And um, yeah, I, I do try and be positive. I do try <laughs> and be optimistic, but there, you know, there are just some big gaps at the moment, and I really would ask, you know people who are concerned about the infrastructure impacts of, of hydropower you know you, you need to look at the long-term climate change impacts that's so important if you've got a better solution please please come forward with it now you know it's we we, we the world needs it right now you know if it's not hydropower you, you've got to find something else super quickly well cool Johan, any final questions or thoughts? No, I, I, I think you. Uh, we leave it on that note. I thought that was a really brilliant uh, finishing in terms of it. I think we all agree on this one. We're running out of time in, in many ways. And, and I think this shift, even though we see very good science and we bring up quite a few of them on this show from technology, et cetera. But as you mentioned many times, we're talking about scale. This is not a small thing change. So uh, a few small technologies here and there will not do it. So I thought that was... Um, a really good ending and i want to thank you for, for for joining thank you very much for having me pleasure it's been a pleasure having you on the show and for our audience and we hope you've enjoyed this conversation uh finding more about hydro and some of the projects and some of the needs it's been informative to me if you've enjoyed the podcast please share it with your friends don't forget to subscribe and we look forward to speaking to you again next week Bye bye